pray for him in a moment. Uh, Luke chapter 19, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And we'll be looking at verses 9 and 10 here. It says, And Jesus said unto him, The day is, uh, the day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man, verse 10, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. If you're looking for a verse that is the centric uh, verse of the book, I would say it's Luke 19.10. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost, was lost, and he's still seeking to save that which was lost. Let's pray this evening. God, I ask tonight you'd help, uh, help us to understand uh, the remainder of the book of Luke, and uh, Lord, help us to uh, have understanding hearts, and God, uh, get, us, um, get us to a place of tender responsiveness as we look at your mission again, your mission of including the outcast of society, including the outsiders. And may we, Lord, uh, not only have been accepted in the beloved uh, from a life of sin into salvation, but Lord, may we learn how to turn around and give that same heart of compassion to others around us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. All right, on the pack of your prayer bulletin there, there is an outline with blanks to be filled in. Uh, the entire outline isn't there. We began this uh, several weeks ago, and we've been working through the outline. Um, the first several points we looked at, we looked at the miraculous birth there at the beginning of the book, talking about the, birth, the births of John the Baptist and Jesus, and then we looked at the Messiah's endorsement. Jesus is the Messiah. We've talked about how that the New Testament Greek word uh, was translated Christ is the Old Testament Hebrew word Messiah. The Jews knew that there was a coming Messiah. It had been spoken of for uh, millennia, uh, many, many, many millennia. And uh, it probably got to a place where people said, yeah, well, we keep hearing he's coming, but where is he? And one day he came on the scene in the, through the womb of a virgin named Mary. And then uh, how was he endorsed? Well, he was endorsed as the people's prophet uh, uh, by John the Baptist, the people had accepted John as being a prophet sent from God, and uh, he baptized Jesus. And then at the baptism of Je uh, Jesus, we see that the Trinity was present. God the Father said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit was there in the form of a dove. Obviously, Jesus, God's Son, was there uh, as he was being baptized. Then we looked at the book's main emphasis in chapter 2, verse 23 through chapter 2, verse 38 which is just a long list of names, but it is much, much more uh, than just a long list of names. In fact, it is, um, uh, it is uh, vital and important to understand uh, how these names tie back into how Jesus is both a human and a deity. A human and a deity, and each book of the Gospels, while many of them tell the same stories of Jesus, all of them have their own unique perspective, and each book has its own set of stories it tells different from the other books. Uh, each one takes the author or the writer's uh, uh, life view and sort of gives us uh, God through that person, gives us a different angle of who Jesus was walking the earth. So in the book of Matthew, we see that Jesus is king. He's king of the universe. In Mark, we see that, yes, while he is a king, he's a servant. And uh, how do you mix those two together? How do you take someone who's a king and someone who's a servant and get them to be uh, both? The answer is that the Bible teaches servant leadership. Servant leadership. You want to lead? You've got to serve. 
And uh, so uh, we see that in the book of Luke, we see Jesus as a man. He is the son of a man. And so what is the book's main emphasis? The book's main emphasis is that Jesus is 100% man. Now, John is going to turn around. We'll look at next week. John's going to turn around and show us how he's 100% God. And Luke shows us that as well. But the emphasis here, Jesus says over and over again, I am the son of man. I am the son of man. What is he saying there? He's saying that I know how you feel. We, we talk how that, uh, uh, how that it's easy to get people to empathize with us when they've gone through the same or similar trial that we're going through. But you can sit across from someone who's never been through anything like what you've gone through in life and you can bear your heart to them and they can try to care, but they can't care for you as much as if someone, uh, uh, as if that person had gone through the same trial with you. And the Bible tells us that there is no feeling of our infirmities that has not touched him. He was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. No matter what it is you're going through, Jesus knows what it is. He knows it. Why? Because he's, he is 100% man. And, uh, and he walked this earth. He, knows, he knew what it was like to be thirsty and to be hungry and to be tired and to be, and to be sick possibly. And, and, and to deal with uh, heartbreak and hurt and loss. And uh, on top of all that, at the end of his life, we'll look at it here in a moment, they hung him on a cross and every single sin, every single sickness, every single wrongdoing, every single pain, Jesus Christ became that and experienced. Experienced it on the cross. There is no level of, of low in your life that Jesus has not become and does not understand. And this Son of Man can put His arm around you and He can say, I know how you feel. I know how you feel. So what is the book's main emphasis? It's that Jesus is the Son of Man. Number four, we looked at the Son of Man's mission. What was his mission here on earth? We looked at chapter 4, verse 18 through 20, and it was to be a preacher. It was to be a physician, and it was to pardon. To be a preacher of the gospel to the poor, uh, to be a preacher of deliverance to the captives, and then to be a preacher of the acceptable year of the Lord. And then we talked about how that he came to earth to be a physician, to heal the brokenhearted, to recover the sight of the blind and the broken, and uh, how he uh, came to Pardon those bruised by sin. We gave you several examples of that. Immediately after Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he reads Isaiah 61 that lays out his life's mission, he goes and he leaves the synagogue and he begins to heal people of their hurts and their pains. Some of the examples that we gave last week and we looked at was that he went and he healed a leper of his leprosy. He took a handicapped man and he gave him strength. He actually raised somebody from the dead. Uh, he gave, uh, he gave uh, uh, inclusion to someone who was a social outcast. Yes, this man had money, but this man was, had been rejected by society and labeled a thief. And he took Levi or Matthew and he allowed him to be his disciple. And he said, no one else wants you, but Matthew, I know where your heart is. And I know that you believe and I want you to follow me and I will teach you the right thing. Not only did he include uh, Matthew, but we see later that he forgave a prostitute, forgave a prostitute. 
What was Jesus trying to say as he walked around? He was saying, it's one thing to talk. It's another thing to do it. I can say that I am the son of man and I'm here for mankind. It's a whole nother thing to get down where people live and touch their lives and help them and heal them. And that's what Jesus was doing. His mantra can be summed up in three words. Welcome the outsiders. Welcome the outsiders. We have talked about over and over again in our church how we don't want to be a Christian country club. We're only people that look like us and smell like us and talk like us and act like us are invited. We want to be a church for everybody. And in fact, the less like us they look, the more welcomed they ought to feel. Number five, we looked at the manifesto of a new kingdom. What was Jesus's manifesto? Well, it was uh, it was uh, it's unusual leaders. He he went and chose 12 folks who during that day would have been labeled peasants, fishermen and tax collectors and uh, just uh, rejects of society, folks that weren't really going to go anywhere with their life, middle class down. He didn't go to the spiritual elites. He went to those who no one would have ever labeled as having a chance. And what did he do? He selected them and he said, come follow me. Um, I'll quickly just insert this here, is that you, if you think that God is going to be missing out by you giving up on him, then he really has no place for you. Who is God looking to use? Those who think that they're worthless. Those who think they're worthless. Say, oh, but pastor, I've got a lot to offer the church. I've got a lot, a lot to offer the Lord. And uh, I'm a talented person. And I'd say this is that don't get too high on yourself. There's not a single person in this building. There's not a single person that's associated with this church. But if they were to drop dead of a heart attack tonight, God couldn't quickly replace and be a better setup afterwards. Not a single person. Um, God does not need your talent. He needs your humility. And he needs your willingness and he needs your faithfulness. And if you'll give him those, he'll work a work through you. It's like a, uh, a puppet after the performance saying, didn't I do a great job? And a puppet can be replaced. It's the puppeteer that's the big deal. God's the puppeteer. We're just his puppets. And... Uh, Another analogy would be, we're just the tools in his toolbox. He's the one that is the master builder. And my prayer is that God will pick me up and keep using me. The truth is, he could lay me down at any point, and there are 100,000 other hammers out there he could use to, to do his work. Um, unusual leaders. This doesn't mean that you're weird. I guess we all have our oddities in some ways, right? Um, but it doesn't mean you go out of your way to be socially inept. I think you ought to try to be with it socially. I think you ought to try to develop yourself socially. But God wants to take those who think they can't, and he wants to do something great out of them. We looked at his, the manifesto. We looked at its unusual leaders. And then we talked about its upside-down philosophy, how that the poor are the ones that are blessed, not the rich. The rich are condemned. And when I say rich, I mean rich in... Uh, uh, oftentimes rich in finances, rich, being rich in finances can lead to being rich and full of self. 
And God said that if your riches are making you full of self, uh, then that is something I condemn. I'm looking for those who are empty of self so I can fill them with me and use them. What was the upside down philosophy? In chapter 6 of Luke, we see that it is to love your enemies and then to love the unlovely. We talked about all those things last week. Number 6, we talked about the march towards Jerusalem. So the book is really broken up into three sections. You've got his time in Galilee, the state of Galilee or the territory of Galilee doing his work there. Then he leaves Galilee and he starts to head toward Jerusalem uh, where he's going to be crucified. A lot of the book, 9 through 19, contains his march toward Jerusalem. He takes a long winding route. And um, uh, in that section of the book, we looked at last week, letter A, we looked at the commission of his disciples. Uh, Chapter 9, he takes his 12 disciples and he sends them out. And he says, go before me and do the work of the ministry. Go out and serve people. We looked at in chapter 9, verses 1, 2, and 3, that in order to be a disciple of Christ, it isn't enough to just come sit on a pew. You have to do the work. What is the work? Well, it's serving others. Then it's doing so out of a minimalistic lifestyle. I can't tell you how many people will tell me, Pastor, I can't go to church because I've got to work. Now, listen, if you have a work schedule that uh, is keeping you from church, that's okay for a little while. But you ought to be looking to get another job so you can get in church. Your work schedule shouldn't keep you from church. It just shouldn't. You say, but Pastor, I need this job to pay my bills. And I ask you, who is the one that gave you the job? Who is the one that gives you the money? He owns it all. And the Bible tells us that we're to be in church. And so uh, uh, we're so busy making our money so we can have our things and we can have uh, uh, our wants that we have labeled as needs. And would we, uh, I, I think that maybe one of the great crimes of the American church is that we live so lavishly and we're so busy living lavishly that we don't have time to really do what we've been commissioned to do. Ministry and minimalism. And Jesus had a lot to say about uh, prayer, provisions, and possessions. He said, if you're going to be my disciple, you're really going to be my disciple, then you need to pray. You know what's fascinating about prayer? Christian's excuse is, I'm too busy to pray. Do you know that if you read through the Gospels, the busier that Jesus got, the more he prayed? Now, I think that's a good example to follow. The busier he was, the more he prayed. What was his instruction toward provisions? Look, you don't need to worry about your own provisions. I will take care of you. Seek first the kingdom of God and all of your provisions and your possessions will be added unto you. Letter B, last week we looked at the compassion on the poor. The compassion on the poor. Another key theme in the book uh, where Jesus travels from Galilee to Jerusalem is his loving on the poor. Again, we see him healing the blind, the sick, uh, uh, getting down and being involved with Samaritans who were uh, 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 racial rejects of society. And then he is uh, uh, associating with a man named Zacchaeus, another tax collector that was hated uh, by the uh, majority of people. And uh, Jesus likens these new followers of his uh, uh, like their guests at a heavenly banquet. And he does this on uh, uh, more than one occasion. Turn over to chapter 15 with me. Chapter 15, verses 1 and 
Here we see the company Jesus spent time with. Then drew near unto him all the publicans, those are the tax collectors, and sinners, for to hear him. So who's around Jesus? The outcast of society, the poor. Either poor socially or poor financially, or poor spiritually. Verse 2. And the Pharisees and scribes, this is the religious crowd, they murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. I can't think of a greater compliment they could have given Jesus. Now, they didn't mean it as a compliment. This man receiveth sinners. Aren't you glad that Jesus received sinners? If Jesus didn't receive sinners, then I'd be hellbound right now. Jesus received this old sinner on April 8th, 1988. I bowed my head and I trusted Jesus. He received me. And he eateth with them. Jesus spent time with people who longed for his help. He didn't live above the fray. He didn't live above the fray. And he took a lot of flack for that. Letter C, we see the confrontation of the Pharisees. Look at chapter 14 with me. Turn back over to chapter 14, look at verse number 1. The Bible says there, And it came to pass, as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. And Jesus answering spake unto uh, the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Now, I find it fascinating that they have Jesus over on the Sabbath day, where they had all of these made-up laws, and the Pharisees are hanging out with lawyers. Now, why would they have lawyers there? I think they had lawyers there. These were more like spiritual lawyers. Because they were looking for a way they could accuse him, arrest him, and kill him. These were men who knew the law. And so they set a trap for Jesus. Hey, Jesus, come over and have dinner with us. And so Jesus walks in, and there are Pharisees and lawyers there. I don't invite lawyers to my house unless they're my friends, and then they're there as my friend, not as a lawyer. They have lawyers in their house. Now, to me, that's suspicious. Look at verse 3. Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? So he's setting them up, and they held their peace. And he took him and healed him and let him go. And answered them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit, and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? They could not answer him again, to these things. Look down with me at verse number 15. And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then said he unto him, A certain man made a great supper and bade many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five uh, yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house 
being angry, said to his servants, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come into my house, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. How does this play out uh, as, a, as a parable? Well, the Old Testament, God spent thousands of years trying to get his people to come to the supper, to believe and receive, and they rejected, and they rejected, and they rejected. And here you have, all of these years later, Jesus walking the earth, these Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees and the council, they are the children, the same children that were bidden to the supper, and they are refusing Jesus' extension to heaven, just like the fathers did, to God. And Jesus is saying here, listen, uh, if you won't accept the invitation because you're making excuses and you're thumbing your nose at my banquet in heaven, then I'm going to accept publicans and sinners and the outcasts of society. They will be welcomed into my heaven. And so he confronts them and he puts his finger in their faces and he says... You all don't want to come to heaven uh, uh, through uh, the Messiah because you are rejecting the Messiah. And I've got to say that that is still the case today. Many of you must, may have seen the news that Billy Graham passed away uh, today. And um, there are a lot of things about Billy Graham, uh, especially later on in his ministry, that I don't uh, necessarily condone or agree with, but... Listen, Billy Graham is responsible for probably more people in heaven than anybody the last couple generations. The guy preached the gospel all over the world of stadiums filled with people. I put a picture on the screen uh, some, some uh, time back during a Sunday evening sermon of a million and a half people in Seoul, South Korea that showed up to listen to him preach. They were filling the streets. They had speakers. And it was unbelievable. The guy preached the gospel and lots and lots and lots uh, of people got saved. One person today on social media attacked uh, him and said that he was in hell. And I thought, wow, what kind of low life are you to make such a, a statement? There are people out there that are going to reject the gospel. They just are. I've got to say, I don't understand how you could really understand what Jesus did for your lost, pathetic soul and reject it. Jesus would turn around in Luke 15 and he would tell three parables about how that he went out to seek and to save the lost. How he went out to compel the, those in the highways and the byways and the lanes and the streets to come into his house. We get the story of the lost sheep, how that the shepherd leaves the ninety and nine sheep there uh, in the field and goes after the one that was stray. We get the story of the lost piece of silver that the woman loses and she cleans her entire house with a lamp until she finds it. And then Luke chapter 15 there toward the end of the chapter, you have the story of the prodigal son, how that he leaves his father and goes astray and that how in time he comes back uh, to, to, uh, to his father's house. The confrontation of the Pharisees, what was Jesus saying? He was saying that heaven is like a banquet and you won't be there. You won't be there. Not because I don't want you there, but because of your stubbornness and sin. And Jesus called out the religious phonies for what they were. 
Number seven, we see the murder of the Son of Man. The murder of the Son of Man. Let's look at um, the backstory here leading up to it. Letter A, notice his accolades. Turn over to chapter 19 and verse 36. His accolades. Jesus um, is making his way toward Jerusalem. He kind of took the long, windy route. As he's approaching, he sends two of his disciples to get a donkey or colt. Uh, the Bible word for uh, the old English word, Bible word for donkey would be the word ass. Again, meant different than it's used in today's terminology. But they go and get the ass or the donkey and they bring it to Jesus and he sits on this donkey. Now, the Pharisees saw Jesus as being this, uh, or rather, saw the future Messiah. And by the way, uh, many Jew, people of the Jude, uh, Judaism still believe this, that he is going to come riding on this white horse, and he's going to come riding in victorious, and he will. But they missed the first riding in, and that is on a donkey. Jesus, you see, he came to be one of us. He came to be a servant. He didn't come into Jerusalem riding the biggest, fanciest, most expensive horse he came in on a donkey, but the people there, the commoners, knew who he was. Look down at verse 36 of chapter 19. He gets the donkey, he's riding into town, and as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had, uh, 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 they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the uh, multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. What were his accolades? Here comes Jesus, King Jesus, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and people are throwing their clothes down. This is Palm Sunday, by the way. They're waving the palm branches, and they're crying out, Hosanna to the highest. And uh, he, is, uh, he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And the Pharisees could not stand it, but nonetheless, it was true. Well, these were his accolades, his praises, letter B. You see his final admonition, his final admonition. He enters into the city. He goes into the, um, uh, the temple there. He flips over the tables of the money changers. He says, you've turned my house into a den of thieves. And he confronts the Pharisees. He tells them that uh, you can destroy the temple in three days. I'll build it back up. And he goes outside of the city. And then he sends two of his disciples into the city to uh, prepare an upper room for him so that he can have the final supper. Turn over to chapter 22 and verse number 19. I'm giving you the in-between there quickly, as quick as I can here. We don't have time to cover all of it. It's meant to be a bird's eye. If you look at chapter 22, verse 19, he's in the upper room with his disciples. The Bible says, and he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Look here, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. But woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. Jesus, his final admonition, he took bread, he brake it, he gave it his disciples. And he said to them, I, Now, let me, let, me, let me take a break here. Let me break the cadence of the sermon. I want to say something here. Um, forget for a moment that you know that Jesus is going to die in the story. 
Now, we all know it. We've heard it our whole lives, most of us. Okay? Forget you know that for a moment. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. You don't know what's about to come. And here you are sitting with this Messiah, this man you believe to be God, and he is taking bread and breaking it as an object illustration. And he's handing you a piece, and then the next disciple a piece, and then the next disciple a piece, and he's saying, chew it, eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. How puzzling would have that been? And then he takes the cup and he holds it up and he says, this is a, a, a symbol of my blood, which I will shed for you. Whoa, 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 hold the phone. Stop talking like that. What do you mean you're going to shed your blood for us? And he drinks it and he hands it to you. And you're looking down at this, this blood-colored grape juice and you're taking a sip thinking, I don't want to think in those terms. Oh, but after the death of Jesus and his resurrection and ascension, as the church is getting started, and Peter and John and uh, uh, Thomas and all the other disciples are standing in front of the church and they're performing the same Lord's Supper that we have, ah, now it makes sense. Now it makes sense. Final admonition. Uh, Christian, let me ask you this. How often do you think about the death of Jesus? We do it once every two months now here at our church. We pass out the Lord's Supper, and you're forced, if you're here, to take time to think about it. But do you know that's something you ought to reflect on every single day? He died for you. He died for you. In my sermon I preached a couple of weeks ago about how prayer changes me, I talked about the effects it has on on you when you reflect back on the cross. It is so much easier to forgive people that have wronged you. It is so much easier for you to confess your sin. It is so much easier for you to have a tender heart toward others when you take time daily to reflect of the great sacrifice He made for you. Let her see. We see His arrest. His arrest. Turn over to chapter 22. Jesus takes His disciples and he goes to the Mount of Olives where he's going to go pray. He leaves nine of his disciples there at the base of the hill. He walks Peter, James, and John up to the top of the hill. And he says to them, watch and pray. Watch and pray. He leaves them there. He goes a little bit further. He falls down on his knees and his face. He begins to pray. He begins to pour out his heart to God. He actually sweats great drops of blood. He's under so much stress, he starts sweating drops of blood and his blood vessels break into his sweat glands and he's under a lot of pressure and he prays. He says, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to drink the sin of humanity. I don't want my fellowship to be broken with you. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And he gets up and goes and checks on his disciples and they're sleeping. And he wakes them up and he says, come on, guys, I'm passionate about this. Stay awake with me. Pray. And they're tired. He goes back and he prays a little bit longer and he comes back and finds them asleep. And he says, sleep on uh, the, 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 the hours coming where the son of man will be arrested. And then sure enough, Judas had betrayed him and Judas has them arrested. Look at verse 47 of chapter 22. It says, And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. He came and he kissed Jesus on the cheek, and he betrayed the Son of Man, the Son of God, with a kiss. Look down to verse 54. Then they took him and led him and brought him into the high priest's house, and Peter 
followed afar off. So we see his arrest. Letter D, we see the accusations. Look down at verse number 66 of chapter 22. The Bible says there, And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together, and led him into their council, saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, ye will not believe. And if I also ask you, ye will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, Art thou the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. And they said, What need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. What was their accusation to have Jesus crucified? You claim to be God. But he is God. Blasphemy, they said. Blasphemy is pouring out of his mouth. They hated him. They hated him because he was real and they weren't. And he had cut through their hypocrisy time and time and time again. And they could not stand him. So they hurled an accusation at him. To those jealous, hating, hypocritical uh, uh, chief priests, I would say this to you. If the best you can drudge up after carefully analyzing him for three and a half years is that he's claimed to be God, that's the worst you've got on the guy, then maybe he is the Son of God. Just maybe he is who he says he is. He's uh, handed to Pilate. He is interviewed by Pilate, the, the Roman governor in charge. And Pilate can't find anything wrong with him. He actually sends him to uh, Herod of Anubis, and Herod can't find anything wrong with him. Sends him back to Pilate. Pilate again can't find anything wrong with him. Pilate sends Jesus off to be beaten with a cat and nine tails, and thinking maybe that will satisfy the people, and they'll see Jesus standing there having been beaten, and maybe they'll finally have some compassion on him. But no, when Jesus comes back there, more bloodthirsty. Crucify him! Crucify him! Finally, Pilate washes his hands in some water. And he says, I find no fault with him. He says, uh, I'm innocent of the blood of this man. They take him to be crucified. Look at chapter 23 and verse 32. The Bible says, There were also two other malefactors, or thieves, or evil men, led with him to be put to death. When they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the mouth actors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And they said, Father, and then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiments and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and and uh, offered him vinegar and said, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. The other answering rebuked him saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing that thou art in the same condemnation? 
We indeed just, justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou enterest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent, rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he, he gave up the ghost. And we see Jesus crucified here. But folks, the story isn't in there. They took his body off the cross. They wrapped it up. They put, put, it, put, put perfumes on it. They laid him in a borrowed tomb. You say, why do you call it a borrowed tomb? Because he didn't need it very long. He just needed it for three days. After three days, he stood up. He shed the grave clothes. And my friends, my Jesus, he's still alive. He's still alive. Um, they tried to kill him. But they found out they couldn't. And they found out they couldn't kill him permanently. Now, I want to end with one more neat little point here. By the way, before we move on. If you've not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus to save you, you need to do that. You need to do that now. The Bible says, behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. You need to ask Jesus to adopt you into his family. You do that by faith. You look back at the cross and you believe Jesus died for you. And when Jesus sees your faith inside of his grace, then he gives you the gift of eternal life. Number eight, and lastly, we see the message of the risen Savior. Turn over to Luke chapter 24. Let's look at a really interesting story here. And one that many of you here know, but maybe an application from the story you never thought of before. Verse 13, the Bible says there, chapter 24, And behold, two of them, speaking of his disciples, went this, that same day to a village called Emmaus, um, uh, which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs. So two disciples of Jesus, we don't know which ones, the two disciples of Jesus, they're leaving Jerusalem and they're walking down the road to Emmaus. All right, verse 14, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden, or blinders were put on them, that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another, as ye walk and are, and are sad? And the one of them, uh, whose name was uh, Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, uh, and hast not known the things which are come to pass in these days? So one of name Cleopas. And he said unto them, What things? And so they go on and tell Jesus tell Jesus the story about how Jesus was killed, not knowing that it is the very Jesus, how the chief priest had killed him and how that he had uh, been buried. And so he goes on and he uh, expounds to them the scriptures from Moses all the way up to there. And he shows them how that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament uh, prophecies of how the Messiah must come and die. Now, look down with me. Here at um, 
Uh, verse number, oh, look at verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh into the village, whither they went, and he uh, made uh, as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And we, and he went in uh, to uh, tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and break and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. If you, if you mark in your Bible, will you, will you underline that? And their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished out of their sight. Here's the point I want to make. Christ is totally invisible when we try to force him to accept our spiritual agenda. We cannot see Christ. We cannot see his working in our life. We cannot see what he's trying to accomplish. It may be that you're here tonight and you're in a perplexed situation. It could be employment. It could be health. It could be financial. It could be a hundred different things. And you cannot see what God is trying to do in your life. And I'm here to tell you that Christ will remain invisible if you are trying to force him to accept your spiritual agenda. However, however, Christ becomes visible and is only visible when we submit ourselves to his upside down kingdom. When we say, I am willing to live the Christian life your way and by your rules and within your kingdom, carrying out your manifesto, your upside down servant leadership first kingdom. Aha, then our eyes become opened like they were to these men once he break bread. He broke bread and immediately he disappeared out of their presence. He was Jesus. He was God. He could do that. And the, the application tonight here, Christian, is this. Are you trying to force God into your agenda or are you doing your best to live his agenda? And it could be that you're here tonight and you say, Pastor, I'm not on purpose trying to force God into my agenda. But don't miss this. Unless you are on purpose intentionally going out of your way out of your way to take his agenda and make it your agenda, then by default, you are forcing him to copy or try to live your agenda. And when you do that, you're fighting against an unmovable force. Don't do that. Don't do that. Christian, how about you tonight? Are you going to allow yourself to come under the Son of Man and copy his lead? Are you greater than he is? If you're going to be his disciple, then you're going to have to do it his way. And his way is the best way. And when you do it his way, he becomes visible in every area of your life. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed this evening. What is the message of the risen Savior? The message of the risen Savior is this. You want to see Jesus and take your agenda and tuck it away. Do your best to live his agenda. Welcome the outsiders. Love the unlovable. Love your enemies. Lord, I pray tonight that you would help us to evaluate our hearts. I think a lot of Christians become bitter at you because they don't understand what you're doing. But really, it's not you that's doing the wrong thing. It's us that's working against you. Lord, no doubt, some circumstances, some hardships in our life we will never get the answer to until we're in heaven. You can sit us down and help us to understand them, but 
No doubt, God, you can give us a peace. A peace to weather those storms. And a tranquility in our spirit that you have everything under control. I pray tonight, God, that our church, those that are here, would commit to doing their best to fulfilling the upside-down kingdom. The servant leadership attitude, the love the unlovable, the, uh, the, the elevating, the accepting of the poor of society, the outcast of society. May we work to serve others, which will in turn serve you and fulfill your um, purpose that you've given us in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet, and uh, the altar will be open as the piano plays. I encourage you to come and kneel and ask yourself to submit yourself to the upside-down kingdom today, that you would live that in your life. If you're